Welcome to the Jurassic Park cast. The Jurassic Park podcast where guests chat with me about Michael Cretton's 1990 novel Jurassic Park, and also not that too. My name's Ryan Rogers, and I'm a big, dumb Jurassic Park fan. Welcome to episode 43, In the Park, recorded on January 20th, 2023. My first recording in 2023. You guys probably noticed a little bit of a break in between episodes while I'm finally catching up. Thanks for joining me today. Uh, continued thank you to Christoph Oaks of Snail, S-N-A-L-E. You can check out his incredible album on Spotify and Bandcamp. Today's intro is from the song Sleepyhead. And our outro is Atomic Age Vampire, Cat in the Brain. Starting with corrections first in episode 39, Lex. I think I kept calling all the stuff that Ed Regis was saying and thinking as being done by Tim, which of course would be incorrect. So in that episode, if it sounds like I'm saying something that Tim wouldn't do and Regis would do, you're probably right, and I'm wrong. Sorry about that. I said in the news section in episode 42, Control that the KPG boundary stood for the geological boundary between the End Cretaceous and the Cenozoic, but that's not quite right. KPG stands for Keep the Party Going. Just kidding. Those letters uh, stand for this. K equates to Cretaceous, uh, but using K because C is already the abbreviation for the Cambrian geological age, and PG stands for the Paleogene. It turns out and I was probably just lucky about this, the Cenozoic is the name of the age after the dinosaurs, like the Mesozoic is the name for the age of the dinosaurs, but the Paleogene is the name of the period that comes sequentially after the Cretaceous. So yes, the Cenozoic and Paleogene begin at the same time. Uh, I wasn't way off with my mistake, but I was wrong. (laughs) KPG stands for the Cretaceous-Paleogene boundary, not the Cretaceous-Cenozoic boundary. That is wrong. And... These are the reasons I have corrections in every episode, folks. And finally, I was recently chatting with Chris Creamer, my terrific guest from episode 36, Nedry, about Dennis Nedry, and specifically about Mr. Goodbites and that companion episode from last week, going over the similarities in the novel and the Looking for Mr. Goodbar film, trying to further suggest why I believe that Nedry's logging credentials are a reference to that film. And he suggested, beyond the evidence that I'd wrangled up, all the candy bar wrappers around Nedry's desk. And that makes another link between Dennis Nedry and the Good Bar Killer, who is named after the, the chocolate bar, Mr. Good Bar, and the bar, uh, <laughs> like the, 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 the restaurant, the restaurant bar, the drinks bar, the evening bar, the night bar, which had a, a wall of candy bar wrappers on it, which gave that pub its name, I think. But good for Chris, this is why I want to talk about the novel with people as opposed to tell people about the novel, because there is definitely more in there that I haven't found yet, and you know what it is, and I want you to tell me about it, (laughs) you secretive hermits. All right, in dinosaur news, in the dinosaur news today, we get two new little velociraptor-like animals from the fossil record. Both fossils are interesting in totally separate ways, giving new insights into the animals. The first article comes from the journal Nature from December 2022 called A Non-Avian Dinosaur with a Streamlined Body Exhibits Potential Adaptations for Swimming, which is about a new swimming dromaeosaur. This paper reports a new theropod, Natovenator polydontis, from the Upper Cretaceous of Mongolia. Quote, the new specimen includes a well-preserved skeleton with several articulated dorsal ribs that are posterolaterally orientated to streamline the body as in diving birds. It also has a, quote, dorsoventrally compressed rib cage like aquatic reptiles, adds the abstract, suggesting that this was potentially a, quote, capable swimming predator 
and the streamlined body evolved independently in separate lineages of theropod dinosaurs. Chiefly, this paper names a new animal, the one-and-a-half-foot-long critter that's believed to have been a highly derived dromaeosaur from the same family as Velociraptor, that adapted itself to become what we'd recognize as a diving bird, basically. It's described as a Halscoraptorinae, which are likely semi-aquatic dromaeosaurids with long necks from the late Cretaceous. Otherwise, they'd have had serrated teeth, a narrow snout, forward-facing eyes, a deep trunk, long arms that could fold against the body, large hands with three long fingers, a large pubic boot projecting beneath the base of the tail, and of course, that famous rectorial claw. There were almost certainly covered in feathers, including large veined wing feathers and tail feathers. This paper says that streamlining a body is a major adaptation for aquatic animals to move efficiently in water. Quote, whereas diving birds are well known to have streamlined bodies, such body shapes have not been documented in non-avian dinosaurs. It is primarily because most known non-avian theropods are terrestrial, barring a few exceptions. However, clear evidence of streamlined bodies is absent even in the purported semi-aquatic groups. The paper argues that natovenator's body shape suggests that it was a, quote, potentially capable swimming predator, and the streamlined body evolved independently in separate lineages of theropod dinosaurs. The second article today is about another dromaeosaur that was exceptionally preserved, and the fossil includes a, quote, large bluish layer in the abdomen, which represents one of the few occurrences of intestinal remnants among non-avian dinosaurs. The article... Intestinal preservation in a bird-like dinosaur supports conservatism in digestive canal evolution among theropods, for November 2022, was published also in the journal Nature. This Chinese dromaeosaur was named Daralong Wangai, a dromaeosaur from the Lower Cretaceous Jehol biota in Inner Mongolia. The name is derived from Daur Nation the, and the Chinese word for dragon, which is long. The species name Wangai honors Mr. Wang Junyu, a director of the Inner Mongolian Museum of Natural History. As a dromaeosaur, Darulong would have been a predator known to forage on fish, mammals, and other dinosaurs. It has shorter arms, making it more closely related to eudromaeosaurs than to microraptorines. It, it, it's represented by the holotype IMMNH PV00731, comprised of an almost complete skeleton excavated from the Pigeon Hill Morindawa Dower Autonomous Banner in Inner Mongolia from the Longjiang formation known to be of the Lower Cretaceous. So, given the incredible preservation of the intestinal area in this specimen, it can be compared with two other fossils which have similar, incredible intestinal preservation from Scipionics and Mauritia. In both cases, the, quote, close topographical correspondence between the intestinal tracts in Darlung and Scipionics relative to their axial skeletons might provide the basis for inferring the extent of the distal dis digestive region in other theropods bracketed phylogenetically by these taxa. An example of inferences which can be made thanks to these similarities include ruling out that some abdominal structures discovered in Sinoceropteryx are eggs because given their, their position in the fossil compared to the strengthened intestinal observations in Darulong Scipionix, and so therefore, they're likely just some guts, and not eggs after all. So Darlong, a cute little dragon that's crushing the egg-finding dreams of Sinoceropteryx. <laughs> Honey, you're not pregnant, it's just gas. <laughs> uh, that might be a, a tasteless joke, I'm sorry. Moving on. With the corrections and the dinosaur news out of the way, please let me introduce you to my special guest this episode. Okay, well, welcome uh, to my special guest today, Cole. Am I saying Medeiros correctly? Medeiros? Medeiros, okay. Who is a game designer uh, who designs things like board games and card games and video games and is a Jurassic Park super fan. Thank you for joining me today. Cole, how are you doing? 
Very good. Thanks uh, for having me. I'm excited to chat. I'm happy you're here. Cole and I met in a prequel to the Lord of the Rings trilogy and the Star Wars trilogy in the fictional town of Gotham before Bruce Wayne became a vigilante, where James Franco was inventing an aerosol inhaler that was to become a treatment for Alzheimer's disease, but instead of curing John Lithgow, uh, it made a bunch of captive chimpanzees, but also gorillas and orangutans, so that the dystopian future could still have race friction. Uh, it made those apes super smart also, uh, but also immune to a specifically deadly anti-human virus uh, that wiped out most of us off the planet, except for you, me, and Charlton Heston. And uh, the tremendously confusing prequel went through a, a few rewrites, but eventually was released in a lovable flop called Dumb and Dumberer When Harry Met Lloyd. Um, and that film went a long way to really help uh, us as an audience better appreciate where Lloyd Christmas was coming from as a character, don't you think? <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's just a pretty common story, I think. <laughs> Tale is old this time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that old chestnut. <laughs> so welcome to the show. Um, you mentioned that you were in the Pacific time zone. Where am I reaching you today? I'm in San Francisco. Right on. Cool. California, yep. I was just telling yeah. you, my last guests are also, in, they say they're in Northern California, but we are just talking about yeah. going to uh, the piers over there and seeing the very, very large seals. Oh, nice. <laughs> yes. <laughs> when, uh... Yeah, they're they're pretty much right down the street from from where I live, so sometimes we we can even hear them from here. So, Any good stories about the seals? <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> um, uh, they're interesting. They really just kind of crowd in over there like the sea lions uh, over on the pier um you know it's it's a it's fun to walk down there sometimes i take my daughter and we just kind of go exploring and see a bunch of random stuff and there's just always something to see on the embarcadero mm -hmm. you know pier 39 and and the, the ferry building always very eventful <laughs> right on. journey so well i remember going up to like touch one you probably shouldn't, but uh, they move fast. They, like, bend in half so fast, uh, and they're yes. huge. Just amazing how yeah. really, really massive they are. Uh, not just yes. in terms of, like, long, but there is a lot of animal involved <laughs> in one of those Yes, things. and it's interesting. In some places, like, you, uh, I, I used to live in Santa Cruz, and, and you could go down sort of on the side of the pier where some of them would be and, and look through the fence and get very, very close to these giant animals and uh I always thought it was really interesting, but also a little bit scary because they're just huge. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I don't want them to be any more angry at me than than not angry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So um, here's a quick question. What's your favorite dinosaur? This is a good way to, to figure out where we stand. Ooh. Ooh. I really like the Parasaurolophus. Mm -hmm. It's a fun one. I don't know if I just like saying the name. A whole bunch uh, <laughs> but the the shape of the head is kind of cool you know another fun one is like the pachycephalosaurus mm -hmm. um, just kind of a interesting looking dinosaur with um, I don't know maybe I just have a fascination with weirdly shaped heads <laughs> on dinosaurs <laughs> I don't know I like the more interesting ones I know? think Parasaurolophus comes up a lot and I wonder if it's got you know uh, it, it has a a dignity to it and I think in, in, mm. the, in the novel, we, when we first meet the Apatosaurus when you arrive at Jurassic Park, there were, uh, Ellie Sadler says that they, they look like they have these long, dignified necks, and she really appreciates mm. how beautiful they look. And, of course, they, mm -hmm. they probably did. But I, I feel like the Parasaurolophus, with its, with its, uh, its crest at the that back crest. of its head, yeah. and it, it presents as, I mean, I think in the second one, what did they call it, the troubadour? But it, it comes mm, with yes. um, uh, yeah. some regality to it, that it, it does mm -hmm. appear 
<laughs> proper in some respects, as if it were carrying a scepter or the crown jewels or something. Yes. <laughs> yeah. It, it is just fascinating, too, to sometimes think about, you know, some of these strange shapes, like, how were they used? What did they actually mm-hmm. do? You know, was there plumage and all this crazy stuff sticking off of it? And so it's, I think it's just interesting, mm-hmm. you know. There's a deep dive to explore if you look at... Um... You could probably find it on the internet if one were to search for it, but uh, when when people consider it just the skeletal remains and then the, if you look at like normal things like hippos and beavers and things like that, to then, you know, what the, the bones do not tell about the rest of the strange things that belong to these animals uh, yes. goes unsaid. And there is this common uh, interpretation that, man, dinosaurs were probably way weirder <laughs> than we can mm-hmm. even imagine. Yes. <laughs> and, and who knows yeah. what they look like? I heard the term shrink wrapping yeah. um, w- with regards to like, you know, we look at fossils and bones and then we just, you know, cover some skin and, and say, oh, that's what they were. But mm-hmm. they're, if you look around at animals today, they have tons of things that, you know, cartilage and just extra skin and frills and stuff that might not be preserved. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually did a very interesting class one time where it was about um, dissection and they had all these different animals that they brought and um we were looking at bones and teeth and um and it just really kind of shows you like the complexity of how an animal fits together yeah Uh, so it was a really neat thing to be able to do Mm -hmm. and in that shrink wrapping vein i think in the same argument when you find a when you if you look it up they'll shrink wrap an owl and they shrink wrap a cat (laughs) and they say look at how like way off (laughs) using that model of shrink wrap just like Interpret bones look like this. Put skin on it. There you go. And these, yes. you know, cat doesn't look anything like that. Yes. Um, yeah. And the owl and looks like an alien. Like yeah. <laughs> they look very strange. Um, that's why it's so interesting that one uh, fossil that was found the uh, uh, the ankylosaur because of the you know the sort of shelled armored outside preserved so much of probably how it looked and you know I couldn't stop staring at that. I was just like wow this is from so long ago and there it is it's mm-hmm. like, it, like it was around yesterday mm-hmm. yeah i think you're talking about the the boreal pelta that uh was found mm. in some sort of concretion and they just it was like opening up a a, a coffin <laughs> yeah <laughs> and inside was <laughs> so just this bizarre. golem sitting there looking at you just incredible <laughs> oh it's so cool though very neat so how did you enter into the Jurassic Park franchise? Was it through the novel? Was it through a movie? Was it through one of the sequels? Mm. Some people tell me that uh, their first experience was playing the games or a game. Oh, interesting. So, yeah, I think... So in the movie came out in 93, right? The first one. Mm-hmm. And so I would have been 10 years old. And I remember seeing the trailers, you know, flashing up on TV and being like, wow, that looks amazing. Um, and they were really clever with the, with the promotion of that movie. They did not really show you much. Um, and so, you know, then we go to see it. I went with my parents and my tiny little brain was just blown apart. Like I, I was just, I'd never seen anything like it. I was, wow, this is amazing. One of my memories (laughs) is, uh, when the Nedry has his death scene. My mom reached over and covered my eyes. <laughs> and and, and uh, yeah, I just, it just blew me away. And I, I remember I was kind of like almost in shock for the next couple of days, just thinking about dinosaurs and like, I'd never imagined something like this before. And, um, 
you know, then I, I picked up the novel and I started reading that and I was like, wow, it's so like a, a whole other way to look at the movie because mm-hmm. it's so different in so many ways. So it was like getting to watch it again almost, you know, mm-hmm. and then I, you know, eagerly awaited the VHS tape to come out <laughs> and then we drove to town and I remember on that day too, it was sort of uh, hot and humid and kind of rainy and I just had this sensation of like, wow, this is like being in the jungle or on an island and and going to pick up these dinosaurs and bring them home and I, we get to watch it again, you know, and pause it and have that experience. And so I was just totally thrown in the deep end of dinosaurs at that point and specifically, you know, Jurassic Park. And uh, certainly going through the, the book, we were just discussing with another guest that uh, really turning to the book, if, if you're looking for more Jurassic Park, the best place, I mean, waiting for a sequel or looking at some of the other tangential media are one thing, but really the best place to go if you want to. That first novel, probably the second novel as well. If you really want to get mm-hmm. more into that universe, that's the place to go. The rest of it is, I mean, there's a wonderful interpretations uh, that people have made of the map, but uh, mm-hmm. I think a lot of the media that exists out there is confused between uh, two realities because the novel and the film, while are related, are different and consequentially yeah. in, in meaningful ways. And so it's hard when you look at some things to, to see bits and pieces of, of um, both uh, universes uh, because they're like polar opposites, right? They, 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 yes. The, the magnets don't touch, so. <laughs> yes. There's, there's overlap, of course. Um, and I just finished going through um, Jurassic Park, The Ultimate Visual History, All right. which uh, I highly recommend. It's kind of like a multimedia book filled with all these little pamphlets and pictures and stuff but it it talks in detail about the script development um of i think the first four movies maybe um but it's it really i thought i had heard a lot of you know all the stories about how you know michael Crichton and steven spielberg worked together to sort of make that work um but but there's even more details and and the the complexity of how do we include these characters or what are they doing or how do we make this punchier you know there were whole segments of the book that you know they wanted to do and they're like we we don't know how to do this <laughs> like <laughs> how do we have a, a, a tyrannosaur crashing through a river like you know it's just not um and so so adjusting you know the novel into the movie I, i've i've thought a lot about that because some things work as a book that don't necessarily work so well as a movie and and why is that? You know, I think it's very interesting. Mm-hmm. I can think of a, a couple of moments off the top of my head immediately. Um, I know when Nedry is blinded before the Dilophosaur mm-hmm. gets him, the sensation of being blind can be portrayed in the written word very well, where yeah. the panic and the terror and the the, the blindness and things like that, um, mm-hmm. and the ominous thing that's going to get you that just blinded you. Yes. Like, all of those things can be uh, reflected to you very, very well uh, in the written word, whereas if you're watching a movie, yeah, you can't see, but you can't really, I mean, through, through yeah. some incredible acts of, I think, uh, surround sound, you might be able to <laughs> do some interesting <laughs> things in terms of makes it sound like something's coming at you, but it's really, really hard to do something with no visual, and it's totally yes. black. And there's a couple moments, I think... I was just going through one, but I think uh, in in the in the kitchen scene in the novel, it's all supposed to be in the dark uh, through mm. the, the night vision goggles. And uh, mm-hmm. you John, that's a great scene too, the yeah. Nedry one. Yeah, um, absolutely. It, it's that's probably one of my favorite 
the, the way that it's written, it's terrifying. Mm -hmm. and, and you're absolutely right. You cannot, uh, somebody had created like a, they took the recording from the novel and they created some like animatics kind of mm -hmm. for that scene. And I sent it to a friend of mine who he does like film and commercials. And his, his comment was, yeah, you, you can never capture how good this scene is mm -hmm. on film because exactly what you say, like, it's so perfect to hear about what he's feeling and, and what he's aware of, but you, you can't show it in the visual medium. And so they, they needed to do something different when they made the movie. That would be an um, astonishing film school challenge to give an entire class that assignment and see what yeah. comes of it. See what comes back. Yeah. I mean, there are probably a lot of different interpretations of it. It would be interesting. Yeah. And I think the uh, the other scene I was just going through was uh, John Arnold finds himself uh, in the sub-basement of the maintenance shed going to turn on the, the power, and he thinks he is outwitted a velociraptor, uh, but of mm. and, but it's too dark down there, and he's feeling away with his fingers trying to mm. figure out, and so Crichton uses the ellipsis over and over, too, because he's, mm. he's, he hasn't found what he's looking for, so the sentence remains open-ended, his search is mm. incomplete, so this ellipsis is always there, and instead of finding what he's looking for to save the day, instead he hears a thump behind him, and that's and then he feels the raptor on top, but it's all in the dark, and it's so fascinating mm. that uh, he can't see what's going to happen. Yeah, those are so those would be very challenging to portray visually or in cinema cinematically, and you get like your yes. complaints. I think that with people had with uh, Game of Thrones, where I can't see anything. It's... <laughs> <laughs> I can't. <Yeah. laughs> yes, it, you know it's interesting because you you wouldn't put this novel and say like, oh, this is horror, mm -hmm. but some of this stuff is very disturbing and frightening because mm -hmm. it's like that's i think what's so fascinating about it i was just thinking about last night how much i don't really enjoy watching horror films mm -hmm. i just feel like it's too much for me but i i love reading horror and i don't know what the difference is but there's something a good writer can do and and Crichton does this so well where he just suggests something you know and the rest of it is in your head and you're kind of like, oh, I want to, I, I want to see more, or I, I mean, I don't, but I do. And then you end up thinking about it, like that Nedry scene. I remember thinking about it so much, going, mm -hmm. wow, like I just, it's so spooky, and it stays with you, and and that, that just makes for such powerful, engaging mm -hmm. scenes. And yeah, as we go through it, uh, looking at it, how does Crichton build tension? How does he develop suspense? And how does he make the, the, some of those moments, especially the Nedry uh, fatality, how does he make that so memorable? And it's not that he got eviscerated, which is memorable, but he draws yeah. it out. So the conclusion yes. is Nedry's uncertain what's going to happen, and he's mm -hmm. pretty sure he's safe, and then he's not. Mm -hmm. And he doesn't know, he yeah. doesn't understand what's... So there's this confusion, and they delay the conclusion. So you keep wondering what's going to happen next. When are they going to get to the... The mm -hmm. conclusion, when is he safe? When is he not safe? When? And by teasing that along, he's able mm -hmm. to keep you engaged. And I think it's that enduring engagement that makes it as memorable as it is. That's why yes. his death stands out and maybe Henry Wu's doesn't because it happens so oh. fast. Yes. Yeah. And, and in contrast, it's like that's a shock factor. In yeah. one. That's just like, wham, he's gone. Mm -hmm. And you are suddenly like, oh, my gosh, <laughs> like. It's just this could, you know, that's the point at which you go, oh, the stakes are pretty high. Anyone could go, you know, very quickly without warning. I've been really studying Michael Crichton's style because, um, like, as someone who is really fascinated with writing, I was like, what is it about how he writes that's so compelling? Because mm -hmm. there's, there's actually a number of books that I've read um, 
of his, even his uh, nonfiction. Uh, he wrote a book called Travels, and it's so, yeah, you just can't stop turning the pages. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And and I was wondering, what is it that he's doing? Like, I I really enjoyed Congo. Um, uh, there's a, oh, there's a whole list of books that I'm blanking on that are sort of his lesser, maybe less popular novels that he wrote earlier on. But what he does is he he basically makes a promise. He kind of asks a question and, and puts the question in your head, like, oh, what's going to happen? And then he answers at least part of that question very quickly and then at the same time introduces more questions. <laughs> and then he proceeds to answer those very quickly. Over and over again, you're getting the promise and delivery in the narrative and after a while you start to say wow everything i'm reading and seeing is going to be delivered on Mm -hmm. so i i just got to read a little bit more and then there's another question and then another answer and Mm -hmm. so even the teasing like of the the tension is part of that like oh you know he just mentioned (laughs) something in the bushes something's gonna happen and i (laughs) gotta find out what it is yeah i try to describe that as there being no empty calories that everything that comes up seems to be have a have a a meaning and it's gonna it's gonna represent something that you're gonna have to pay attention to shortly if not mm-hmm. and then some of them like um why the northern digs i think was one of the mysteries that uh mm-hmm. endures throughout the entirety of the of the novel i know that the the frog dna that's a mm-hmm. riddle that gets teased multiple times throughout the the novel that doesn't get resolved until closer towards the end and so there's a couple mm-hmm. of mysteries that he he keeps on the back burner and uh, yes. he stirs it a little bit to make sure it doesn't burn, but then <laughs> leaves yeah, exactly. it uh, unserved until you get to the, the back of the book. So, yeah, that's mm-hmm. part of it, definitely. So yeah. I guess I, when we talk about – you've looked at the book so much, what, which, which characters from the novel stand out as your favorites or, or maybe one that is a sneaky favorite? Is there anything like that? I think there's something really interesting for me with um, Gennaro, especially with yeah. how he – changes from the book to the movie that's just interesting because mm-hmm. like ed regis kind of gets rolled into him and so it's interesting to see those characters um because in the book Gennaro is much more sort of brave and proactive he's kind of muldoon's sidekick or foil and then ed regis you know kind of represents that kind of greedy kind of cocky not really there's no respect really mm-hmm. for what's going on but there's definitely like fear right and then that fear is realized in his in his death scene and like i don't know i I don't know why those kind of stand out as just Mm -hmm. some interesting characters to me they definitely um when you read the novel have so much more gravitas than than what we're familiar with because we're so familiar with the movie and everyone is so familiar with the movie and the movie really was the star maker it's the one that yeah like (laughs) <laughs> projected the, yes. this concept into hyperspace. Um, mm-hmm. But Gennaro is so different, so remarkably yes. different from the adaptation they yeah. put into the film. And for the better. But I found that Crichton used him as like this inquisitive person that had a question about everything. He questioned Muldoon yes. about stuff, and he gave Muldoon a reason to explain things. He questioned mm-hmm. Arnold about the systems, and that gave a reason for Arnold to explain things. And he questions yeah. Malcolm about chaos theory, and he questions Malcolm about, what the heck are you talking about? And it gives him a reason uh-huh. to explain things. Without That's Gennaro, true. 
And literally, if you check out, if you were to ISO cam, only his lines is like, what does that mean? How come? Why? He doesn't say much. He doesn't really share his opinions on anything. He literally is just there to prompt exposition in a, in a natural way. And I think Craig yeah. does it well. But if you're to like, like when I've taken a much closer look at this and I think any person should. <laughs> and some of these things stick out. And, and they don't, and, they, and you, when you see, I guess, the seams, um, they're visible, and uh, and nobody's supposed to read something this closely. It's just crazy, but um, it's been interesting to look at anyhow. But Gennaro's no, one it's, of them. It's, it's very cool. It's uh, it's he's kind of like the the Watson then to the to the Sherlock's. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, because you know Malcolm throughout like just launches into a million things, mm-hmm. right? And mm-hmm. I think I remember even Michael Crichton saying. I hadn't anticipated him to talk so much, but he wouldn't shut up. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and, uh, but it's fun. It's really fun to read that exposition. The, the, the voice of the character is so strong. Yeah, it would probably not come off as well if there wasn't somebody saying, hey, what is that? Mm-hmm. Or why? That doesn't make sense. Like, explain it to me. And Malcolm's such a confusing character because he's got these interesting metaphors and he needs to explain complicated theories or mm-hmm. ideas and it all boils down to he as far as i've been able to interpret it says humanity experimenting with society uh, after all of these thousands of years uh looking back on it it's not working <laughs> it's basically society <laughs> however we've built it all up whoever the stakeholders and the, the people that built these systems of control and power it's all been leading us to here and this isn't very good <laughs> and the things that we do with all this stuff isn't working and so he's like this i'm not sure what the right term but it's like it's not anti-capitalist it's not mm. anti-patriarchal it's not you know misanthropy he just he's like what we've been trying here it's like whatever the societal version of agnosticism is he's like listen mm. i believe that society could work but none of this is <laughs> approaching correct <laughs> and uh and and so he, he's really like the environment not doing a very good job with that <laughs> Uh, household mm-hmm. chores. We, we're not. We don't have any more free time, despite all of our advancements. Science isn't being used particularly well. He just like, yeah, we've we're not working in terms of like a, a thing that's coexisting on a planet. Uh, we're doing the bad yes. part of it here. Yeah. I don't know what the word is for that, I, I, but that's Malcolm. It's totally true, and I, he, um, you know, he's he's just pointing to the fact that the systems are so complicated, and that. We think, oh, we can control the variables and nudge them around and that we have some semblance of, uh, I don't know, ownership or, uh, you know, that we can predict what's going to happen when we start pushing buttons. And he's like, nope, (laughs) like that is not the case. Mm -hmm. Um, I guess almost sort of like a a conscience or a reminder sort of is, is what his a little cynical, but like trying to slap down some of the arrogance is, is I think what he's about. Yeah. He's got this perception on science, sort of like as in science that with a capital S has not been found yet. Like 
Science has mm. always been an experimental process. It's always been about mm -hmm. trial and error. It's always about revising your hypothesis. Science is always about this investigation into discovery. But at any point where you stop and say, no, science tells us this, and let's uh, let's move forward and act on this. We're like, no, no, no. <laughs> science can tell you things up to a point, but it's always this continuum. It's an unending mm -hmm. investigation. And to, to believe wholeheartedly, full stop, in where it stands presently, he cautions, well, you don't know what the future holds or what, what flaws exist that we haven't come up with yet or haven't found yet. Yes. And so it's all, yeah. and, and, and a big part of it is you haven't the, the humility before science or nature to appreciate, A, what we may not know yet, but B, what was learned theoretically by the people who learned this stuff, the, the, he calls it a built-in watchdog. Watchdogs are mm. the ones, like, as you acquire a, a skill, you gain a respect for the skill and you won't mis uh, misappropriate it. But yes. by, by just being given the scientific knowledge that has been discovered <laughs> by the process by the people, you didn't get that guard dog put in you, and therefore you may not have the same respect for it. And uh, that's a big part of, of how he feels about it all. He doesn't trust yeah. science <laughs> any more than he trusts anybody. Yeah. I think it's, it's almost like a, it's sort of the scope and scale of it that mm -hmm. is that where the caution is. Because, like, when you're methodically moving through something and you take your time and you, like you say, you, you learn it, it's like, okay, now we kind of understand what could possibly go wrong a little bit better. But a lot of Michael Crichton's stuff is like this. It says technology has been increasing, increasing, increasing. And it gets to a point where, yeah, you can just take a whole thing and slap it in over here and you've totally bypassed that whole process of, you know, gaining knowledge and, and being able to respect it. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I, I do think it's a, that's kind of pointed at in, in several Crichton novels of it's just going, it's starting to go too fast and humans have no idea mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. how to even remotely keep it from just blowing everything up. The mm -hmm. whole system is just spiraling out of control. I can almost imagine, like, was it the movie 300 that was based on that concept of uh, if you can bottleneck mm -hmm. your, your <laughs> bottleneck yes. your, the problem, you can control its, uh, its uh, flow. But in this case, yes. the bottleneck yeah. is burst, and, uh, and you're right. There's no control, and there's no safety. There's no yeah. security with it all. Um, I was just watching a thing about CRISPR and how people are doing CRISPR experiments, like, at home, like, with their kids <laughs> <laughs> right now, you know? <laughs> and, like... You can just modify a plant like you can just alter its DNA and see what happens and, and people are doing it, you know, mm -hmm. and it's like, OK, I want to make this purple. Well, you didn't anticipate it also is now poisonous. Mm -hmm. you know? <laughs> like those are the kinds of things that yeah. can happen. A new unstoppable algae entering the water stream. Thanks, yeah. Thanks, home tech. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> I've never exactly. heard of that. That's only in California, I guess. <laughs> Maybe. I don't know. We yeah. haven't got problems with our water enough. Let's do this, too. <laughs> yeah. It's a, it's a little wacky. It's just, uh, sure, go ahead. Just do some genetic modification. So in terms of oh. speaking about like prequels and backstories, this uh, mm -hmm. particular chapter is called In the Park. It's when uh, Grant and the kids escape the Tyrannosaur Paddock, enter into the Sauropod mm -hmm. Paddock, bunk down in the Sauropod Maintenance Shed number four. And Grant and Tim wow. in particular share a little bit about their lives. And it's a brief moment where we get kind of some backstory on Grant, how he had been married, but his wife had died. Mm -hmm. Sattler, she's going to marry a nice doctor in Chicago, we're told, next year, uh, which I've got an interesting query about that and then tim talks a bit more about his home life that his mom and dad are split up 
that his mom has a new boyfriend, that uh, Lex is clinging to this, imag- to this, I guess, relationship she used to have with her dad, but her dad's moved out and mm-hmm. found a new place in another part of town. I think they're from New York mm-hmm. City. I would like to think mm-hmm. that that's true. But uh, and so we get a little bit of backstory with these people, always alluding to like these interesting moments in their lives, but very noticeably, their backstories are left vague or underdeveloped um, because they don't really tell the story about Jurassic Park, and that's really what this is all about. Um, You've touched on that you're working on a a fun prequel or backstory that explores some of the elements of what led to the construction of Jurassic Park and the events uh, which scared investors and promoted the consultants uh, to have this safety inspection. When you're looking closely at the book and wondering about all the different backstories of some of the characters, where do you find the most intrigue? Most of what I've been focusing on, because like, so back in, it was 2017, I just got in my head, I I wanted to write something in the style of somebody I really respect as a writer. So I, um, I actually tried Tolkien first (laughs) and was like, nope, can't do it. (laughs) It's too hard. Um, And, and then I, you know, I said, oh, I'll start, I'll write something like Michael Crichton if Mm -hmm. I can. And um, so I wrote a little chapter um, that was the like a helicopter flying over to basically do a little bit of survey work of Isla Nublar. And, um, you know, that was just kind of the, the seed that kind of sparked, oh, maybe I can do something with this. And so I started doing a lot of research because what I found was when you're working on a prequel, you, you have to be extremely knowledgeable about the timeline that is mentioned, obviously. And so I had to go back and look for all these little details, like when was Ingen founded and where. And, um, you know, I also, I'm close to Palo Alto, so I drove by it actually. Okay, <laughs> all right. Through it, looking for the, the, you know, the address of where this, you know, it doesn't exist, but, um, <laughs> you know, it's, it, there's not even a, I thought there might be office buildings, but there's just residential there. One, two, three, but, fake um, street. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, you have to, you have to really piece those things together and make sure there's no conflicts. And what I found is, the, I mean, based on, cause I was trying to unite a lot of different sources. And like you said earlier, they don't line up, mm. you know, there's the novel and then there's like all the other stuff. Even John Hammond's name is different mm. in some cases, Parker versus I think Alfred as a middle name. So you, you know, you start digging, you start putting these puzzle pieces together and then, and then you have to kind of stitch together, okay, like, why do these little events that were not solidly put together by Crichton, why do they lead into each other? What's the narrative? And then what's also the, the, the wiggle room in between those points that you can tell an interesting story that sounds like it fits? Mm-hmm. Um, and so as far as, like, which pieces were most interesting to me, um, I wanted to see things like how do you – lease an island like how do you <laughs> yeah. why like how do you build there why why build this giant place in the most difficult to get to spot um when they could do all of this in a warehouse in palo alto or you know those are the questions that i tried to answer and think about and um and then along the way you know other little storylines and characters um kind of bubbled up i I very quickly realized that simply following Hammond wasn't going to work um, because he, you know, he is an interesting character and there's stuff that's fun to see. Like I do have a scene 
that I wrote where he's talking to like Japanese investors and trots out the elephant, you know, to say, here, there it is. Mm -hmm. um, and seeing Gennaro in his like San Francisco law office, making phone calls and talking to some people. And, you know, I thought these were very interesting things to kind of flesh out, but I didn't want to just tell the same story over again that you've already heard. Like yeah. you've already heard there's an elephant and some of the details there. So I have to show more stuff that's interesting and actually applies to, you know, the greater narrative. That's awesome. Um, well, we're, we're just yeah. about out of time. If people wanted to, to find out more about where to follow up on that, or you mentioned that you have uh, some fun card games that uh, you might be uh, licensing. Oh, yeah. Where could people um, find that stuff? I, I, you know, if they just Google my name, I have a website up there. It should talk about Gubs, the card game. That's cool. something I'm working on. Gubs, a game of wit and luck. And, uh, and yeah, that's kind of what I'm doing at the moment. Make sure that uh, you, you go check out the website. You can find the link in the in the in the show notes. I'll make sure that it's there for everyone. Thank you for being a guest on the show. I really appreciate you coming by and sharing some of these uh, these terrific insights on the on the book. Um, Super fun. Sounds like a fun project you're working on with uh, the prequel. It could be really cool to check out. Thanks. Well, I, I hope to be able to share some of it soon. It's a it's a long, slow project, but I'm <laughs> I'm excited to see what Jurassic Park fans think when they get a chance to read it. Right on. Yeah, I can't wait. All right. Well, thank you again. Thank you. All right. A great big thank you to Cole. Cole, what a wonderful project you're working on. I've got to read a little excerpt from uh, the project uh, from the from the prequel, and it's it's good. It sounds great. The text this week is in the park, spanning from pages 233 to 238. In a synopsis, Grant, Lex, and Tim exit the Tyrannosaur paddock by climbing an electric fence and find a maintenance shed to sleep in. Grant and Tim have a heart to heart about their lives and their pasts. And their futures. Characters. Lex Murphy. She's tired. Wants Dr. Grant to carry her on page 233. She is carried, presumably cuddling with Grant like a young, young kid, and rests her head on his shoulder and falls asleep. So, like, she's not up on his shoulders like at a parade, which is what I would do. Uh, and this isn't like a fireman's carry, again, which is more likely what I'd do, but a very paternal or parental embraced carry. And Tim relates that their dad no longer picks Lex up or carries her anymore and that she misses him on page 234. An animal bellows from far away, but it makes Lex wake up and sniffle on 236. And again, Lex teases in an ill-natured manner, almost like Tim's father would do when she mocks him for being afraid of heights and perhaps unwilling to climb the 12-foot electrified fence on page 237. And she hands Grant her glove and baseball before climbing the fence. Remember, she is still carrying this stuff. That could be important later. Next, Lex complains about the water being cold on page 237 when they get into the moat. And upon arriving at the concrete shed, Lex leads the way between the big bars, sneaking inside on page 238. And upon securing shelter for the night, Lex, Lex asks again if there's anything to eat. Remember, she's hungry. <laughs> she won't let you forget. Tim Murphy, he thinks his sister is being a baby and doesn't want Grant to carry her on 233. Also, Tim is carrying the night vision goggles, though it won't be mentioned. Tim's tough. After all, he's been through and is also fairly aware that they're in the Tyrannosaur area. He knows they got to get beyond this before they can rest at all. Tim aptly observes that the motion sensors are labeled and that the labels appear to indicate that they are heading northwards, which is good. That's where the visitor area is, we're told on 234. The encouragement from Grant helps Tim feel welcome by his mentor and idol, and so opens up to him about his parents' divorce on 234. Tim feels like his mom's new boyfriend is okay, and that he's younger than his dad, but is bald on 235, we're told. And he admits that the guy treats them okay. 
There are some pressures his mom and her boyfriend are facing, something around selling the house that they argue about, which Tim can overhear while he's playing on his computer. Tim is astonished to find that Sattler is still a student, suggesting again that she is not yet credentialed as a doctor on 235. There remains some inconsistency in how Sattler is portrayed in this way. Many, many characters refer to her as Dr. Sattler. Next, Tim wonders if Grant won't marry Dr. Sattler, then who's he going to marry? And Grant blows his mind, suggesting that he may not marry anyone, an option that Tim couldn't believe was even an option. And he's delighted to think he won't have to marry someone because he's supposed to and wind up unhappy like his parents are. And Tim's sarcastic with his sister when she jeers him later on 2.37. Dr. Alan Grant. Grant finds Lex heavy to carry and is thinking hard remembering his time in the control room, envisioning the glass map with the barriers and the territorial ranges of the Tyrannosaurs. He knows they're likely in the Tyrannosaur paddock. He knows they're likely in the Tyrannosaur paddock and knows that should they cross a barrier, like a moat, that they should then be exiting the Tyrannosaur paddock, which is what they want to do. He also checks in on Tim to see how he's holding up. Grant's plan is to navigate through the park by the numbers on the motion sensors, we're told on 234. The low-clung mist appears, quote, beautiful to Grant, though he knows it makes the ground treacherous. This is interesting in that Grant can find something beautiful also, know that it is very dangerous, and this is a fine perspective for someone who will continue to face off against dinosaurs throughout their journey back to the visitor center, and of course, against the velociraptors. Recall, Malcolm, I believe, was a god they're ugly of the velociraptors, and this is another example of Crichton exhibiting the distinction between Malcolm and Grant, or at least setting Grant apart from the others. He can see something dangerous and think it's beautiful. Malcolm sees something dangerous and thinks it's ugly. Grant will later find the pterosaurs, quote, so beautiful as they glide through the air, after which they attack. And Ellie also finds the long necks of apatosaurs, quote, beautiful and not, quote, dumpy looking like they're portrayed in books. So here we are, our, our dinosaur lovers think dinosaurs look good, I guess, <laughs> or, or can appreciate beauty when they see it. When Tim recognizes that the motion sensors are indicating that they're heading north, Grant applauds Tim and encourages his input. Though Grant has already figured this out already, again, this is another insightful expression of Grant's character, that, that he can't resist being an encouraging educator. And we can see that it's made Ellie Sattler a devout believer in him, and it'll make Tim one too. In sharing with Tim, Grant reveals his wife died, quote, a long time ago, on page 235. Upon Tim's guessing that he and Sattler are dating, Grant smiles in the darkness and says that no, she is his student. Again, Crichton reveals character here, the smile in the darkness revealing a joy that comes from that inquisition. It's either that Grant likes the idea that he might be with Sattler or that the question makes him smile as if it were funny. My reading is the former rather than the, the latter. Grant dismisses that they could be together because she is his student, that it is inappropriate is answer enough. He also reveals he has no children nor prospects of marrying anyone at any time, and he's happy that way. Grant could probably walk all night, as we heard Sattler suggest, what with his history of hiking out of the Badlands on a broken leg before, but while carrying Lex and overseeing the well-being of two children, he concedes that that's not going to work. He's not Ed Regis. He won't leave the kids behind. In fact, he'll change his pace to suit them so they can all survive together. But he hasn't forgotten their task. They have to warn everyone of the raptors on the boat and recalls that they have 15 hours to spare so they can afford to take a nap. Grant climbs a tree looking for shelter and they could spend the night in on page 236 and uses the night vision goggles, which he borrows from Tim. They'll have to climb a fence to exit the Tyrannosaur paddock and reach the shelter, but Tim is afraid of heights. Grant is very patient and supporting and helping Tim navigate this obstacle that scares him. Perhaps there will be reciprocity later in the novel when Tim has to help Grant navigate the computer systems, which scare and intimidate Grant. I don't feel like that's true. I think Tim just takes care of that, but perhaps we'll remember this moment when we get there and 
See if that tracks. To climb from the moat, Grant discovers a vine and a crack in the concrete with which they can climb out on 237. Once out of the moat, they find a below-grade service building. But after passing two motion sensors along the way, Grant grows concerned because the power is still out. And by his calculations, it's been more than two hours since it went out. This indicates a more concerning problem than just a downed fence. Upon securing shelter for the group, exhaustion overwhelms Grant and the kids on 238, and they're almost immediately snoring. Mr. Murphy, uh, Tim and Lex's dad, we're told that Tim's parents are getting a divorce and that his father moved out, quote, last month, which would make it in July, I guess, on 234. And he was... And he has his own place in Mill Valley now. Now, I can't confirm or deny that Mill Valley is a real place or not. There is one in California, but I believe that the, that the Murphys come from New York. Unless his dad moved to California, but I don't know. Tim says that his dad no longer carries Lex. He doesn't even pick her up anymore. And he picks on Tim, saying he's got dinosaurs on the brain, but not in a flattering way. Mrs. Murphy, she has a new boyfriend, someone she met from work on 234, and she doesn't really miss Mr. Murphy. Dr. Ellie Sattler, Grant confirms in this chapter in his conversation with Tim that Sattler is his student, that she is a graduate student, and that she's due to marry a, quote, nice doctor in Chicago sometime next year, which is 1990 in the novel universe. All right, localities. The Tyrannosaur Paddock. Lex, Tim, and Alan are under a moonlit night, which is bright enough to cast shadow over an, quote, open field as they're heading towards the, quote, dark woods beyond. They'd originally crossed over the fence that the Tyrannosaur had battered down, which was likely the Tyrannosaur Paddock. And he recalls the glass map at the park with the lights on it from the visiting the control room. Remember, it lit up like a Christmas tree on 127. And the Tyrannosaurs are isolated from all the other animals. They do not share a paddock with other animals. Recall the Apatosaurus and the Hedrosaurus are in a paddock together, though. One of the motion sensors here in the paddock is labeled TSO4, we're told on 234. And as they walk away from the, from the hole in the fence by the main road by which they entered the park, the sensors descend in number, TSO3, then TSO2, TSO1, and then it flips, TNO1. This may be interpreted rightly, I think, as the T representing which paddock they are in, Tyrannosaurus, the N or S representing their, their geolocation to a center point in the paddock, divided into north and south. And the numerals represent likely some sort of consistent distance, maybe 100 yards. Recall, the sensors, we're told, can accurately geolocate an animal in the park within five feet of its actual locality, where we're told on 127. The forest of the Tyrannosaur paddock is, quote, dark and forbidding, and the, quote, huge trees loomed on all sides on 234. A building in the paddock beyond the Tyrannosaur paddock which I believe is the Ornithischian paddock, where the Triceratops are housed, we have this concrete building, which is, quote, bunker-like on 238. Then the locked gate is large enough to drive a truck through, but it's fitted with heavy bars. Inside, it's an open shed with piles of grass and bales of hay stacked among equipment. We find out later that this is Sauropod Maintenance Building 04. So maybe they're in the sauropod paddock. I don't know what it's called. Stylistic techniques. We have italics, and we always have italics with Lex. But I'm tired on 233, which can be really read as really, really whiny, like a little child might do. You mean she's still in school? On 235, says an astonished Tim, who figured that Sattler was an adult, and perhaps cannot comprehend academia beyond his teenage years. And recall, Sattler is only 24 years old. Tim spun in fury. You shut up! All italics. At 237, the italics betray the truth and passion behind his statement. Again, Lex is embarrassing Tim in front of his hero, just like her dad does. It's freezing, complains Lex when standing waist-deep in the smelly moat water, which may be perhaps only knee-high for Grant. She feels as if her teasing Tim for being afraid of heights is what motivated him to overcome his fears and that she deserves some credit for it, too. And again, she's exemplary as a complete brat. 
which is on brand. Colon. He followed the gray curve of the moat and then saw what he was looking for, colon, the dark strip of a service road leading to the flat rectangle of a roof on 236. Here, the colon is used to present an object, the object being a term regarding sentence structure. Colons are great at this and usually present lists or quotes or figures and images, and in this case, it presents exactly what Grant is looking for, in this case, a service road. Semicolon, quote, and the tree branches were hard, semicolon. They wouldn't get any rest on 236. Two conjoined clauses illustrating a cause and effect in more of a call-and-response sort of way, and these branches are hard, thus they would not sleep well if they were to sleep on them. Quote, the concrete was smooth, semicolon. They couldn't possibly climb it. And another sort of connection of two thoughts where one completes a sentence sort of way. Here's an issue, and here's why it's a problem. Quote, he was right. It was a semicolon. It was a tight squeeze, but Grant was able to ease his body between the bars and get into the shed on 238. Again, cause and effect is portrayed here as Tim's comment is proven true. The action revealing its trueness permits Grant access. M-dash. Finding a building meant a search strategy of some kind, and the best strategies were M-dash on 236. Here, Grant has the sudden idea to climb a tree, and to ratchet up the pacing rather than revealing his plan, Creighton slips us this M-dash, and then suddenly Grant is, quote, high in the branches, with a, quote, good view of the forest. This is great mechanics that helps improve pacing and gets us moving forwards. Quote, they were surprisingly near the edge of the forest. M-dash, directly ahead of the trees ended before a clearing with an electrified fence and a pale concrete moat on 236. I'm not entirely sure what the mechanics of an M-dash performs here. It feels like it's replacing a comma or a semicolon, but less formally. But, but why? I feel like this is... I feel like in this insertion, in this iteration, the M-dash is like a comma, but rather than a pause, it's like a jump cut you might see in a film. So rather than a pause, you're to read it like you're sliding your attention along a line of sight and spotting what he's seeing. Like when playing the game Snakes and Ladders, and you pause to slide up or down rather than pausing for poetic purposes, I guess? But that's just me being generous, because I don't love how this M-dash is used here. Pacing. The M-dash performs well in improving the pacing, and Crichton is skipping a lot of steps along the way by using it. Grant is inspired to climb a tree. Before you know it, he's among the branches. The kids are arguing about climbing a fence. Next thing you know, they're freezing in the moat already, having climbed up and over the other side. Again, jump cuts. And it's good. On the tour, Crichton had to move slowly through a long chapter because he was putting a lot of pieces on the board. But here, he's already in a long chapter, and if the activity isn't progressing a plot or character's development, he's skipping it. And that's what you're supposed to do. So that's good writing. Literary techniques. We have a metaphor. Quote, the mist clung to the ground, curling around the roots of the trees. Mist in and of itself does not cling, but it but in this case, it feels like it has agency as it snakes around low to the earth, and it makes walking treacherous. It's said to be, quote, beautiful from Grant's perspective. In the darkness, the concrete building was forbidding, like uh, bunker-like on 238, observes Grant. Again, this is consistent with the militarization of the park, which was observed much earlier when Sattler and Grant were inspecting the plans. Remember that back on page 54, they were described like Nazi pillboxes from old war movies. Similarly, Grant realized the numbers must be arranged geographically around a central point, like a compass, on page 234. This suggests that this isn't necessarily just the center of the Tyrannosaur paddock, but also the center of the island, maybe. But this is only a simile that may not be gospel. So the Hipsy paddock, which would be north of this, and its entire paddock would be labeled HN, and then a numeral. There would be no S-labeled motion sensors because they are all north of the center point of the island, which is suggested here at this moment on page 234. 
234. As Grant and the kids cross that threshold, I'm not sure this is definitive, but it's what's suggested by this simile. In everything south, like the stegosaur paddock, would only have S's in the labels of the motion sensors. All right, some more discussion on this chapter in particular. Show, don't tell. In the vein of building a romance, even a subtle one, between Grant and Sattler, Crichton is exceedingly subtle. There's no wonder that their camaraderie in the novel inspired Spielberg to adapt it more romantically into the film, while retaining much of that subtlety. From Tim's guess that Grant and Sattler are together, Grant, quote, smiles in the darkness and says that no, she is his student. We know that Grant is protective of Sattler, but also treats her as an equal, as he does with Tim. Gender and age present no barriers to his friendship, but Grant is principled. She is his student, and he wouldn't transgress that boundary. And Grant's principled nature will reemerge when he confronts Gennaro about shirking his responsibilities at the end of the novel. And, in a Sattler-related vein, recall, too, that Gennaro snuck off in Harding's gas-powered jeep after they discovered the Velociraptor eggs by the six Stegosaurus because he was attracted to Sattler and wanted to make time with her, as posited by Malcolm and verified by Grant. It is unprincipled for Gennaro to have been creeping on Sattler, as well as it is unprincipled that Gennaro might not have the ambition to count the animals on the island to determine whether some have escaped to the mainland or not. So principled is a motivating characteristic of Grant, though it's written so subtly that it sticks out at the end when it's no longer subtle, or as subtle as pinning a man up against the wall by the collar of his shirt can be. Timeline. It's about 9 p.m. now in the novel on page 233. That's two hours after the Tyrannosaur attacked the Land Cruisers and an hour and a half since they watched the juvenile kill Regis and escape into the park. So they've been hiking through the park, perhaps through the jungle, for an hour and a half. The storm had moved to the south, we were told on page 235, and so it's still storming on the island. But the storm is either only at the southern end of the Isla Nublar now or perhaps beyond over the ocean. Crichton Tropes. Recall when we were reading through the lo those long chapters on the tour and going through the control processes and thinking, man, when are we going to get to the dinosaurs? Well, all that setup is paying off, and in this case, Grant is plotting his navigation of the park thanks to seeing the map earlier. And later, he's recalling the map and all those buildings scattered about the park that he had noticed, and even what he spotted as they flew overhead upon their arrival on 236. This was set up in the chapter plans way back on page 53. All the exposition that came so naturally, albeit in a somewhat lengthy process, is paying off now, and it's cohesively connecting all the storytelling together. This is another aspect of Crichton, of Crichton having done a very good job building an entire park and narrative together in a meaningful way. The Jurassic Expanded Universe. Okay, here is a wild theory, but here it goes. Film historian Joseph McBride has made it a matter of record that while Spielberg and Crichton were developing a concept, which would later become the multiple award-winning 15-season-spanning NBC super-mega-hit ER, Spielberg learned that Crichton was writing the novel Jurassic Park. Loving the concept and dinosaurs, Spielberg agreed to option a script for Jurassic Park before the novel was even published. So, in a world where this novel is being written, and E.R. is being adapted at the same time, we have a Crichton character, Alan Grant, confirming that Sattler is due to marry a, quote, nice doctor in Chicago sometime next year. Where might you find a cast of doctors from Chicago? Oh yeah, in E.R. Can you imagine a world where Sattler and some hunk from E.R. were married, or at least engaged? Which doctor do you think it would have been? 
pretty neat stuff, eh? ER and Jurassic Park living in the same world. Compared to the film. All right. Here are some similarities to what is in the book and what's in the film from this chapter. Our heroes come across an electric fence, which they must climb as they navigate their way out of the park. Lex teases Tim for being afraid of heights, and the dinosaur bellows. Grant and Tim have time to connect. Mano e mano, and Grant climbs a tree. Those things are all <laughs> are common about those experiences, but there are some differences. They do not sleep in a treetop in the novel. A brachiosaurus does not meet them when they awake in the novel. They do not discover raptor eggs in the morning in the novel. There is no threat that the power might come back on while they're climbing in the novel. It is not the dark of night in the film. A dinosaur bellow motivates them to climb, whereas in the novel the bellow was, quote, far away, and it, quote, won't bother them, according to Grant. So that's not a pressure for climbing the fence in the novel. Tim and Grant chat about Grant's career, whereas in the novel they chat about their families. The novel kids have night vision goggles still, whereas in the film these are long gone. So there we go, compare and contrast. And island layout. We're told that the moon is blurred by, quote, drifting mist on page 233, which coincides with the portrayal of a cloudy island, which is named Isla Nublar, where Nublar is Spanish for cloud. And here's a fun aside as we're translating Nublar. Nublar doesn't just mean cloud, but it's also a verb as in to cloud over or to obscure or to darken, which is fascinating. In English, this is like a cloud hanging over someone or to be under a cloud of suspicion, meaning to be viewed with distrust. Hammond's Cloud Island, shrouded in secrecy, under a cloud of mystery. Really cool. Also, the motion sensors, which I always envisioned as a security camera, are described as, quote, green boxes set about four feet off the ground on page 234, primarily attached to trees. Each box has a glass lens mounted in the center and a painted code number. Our heroes pass motion sensors labeled with S's, with declining numbers, and then some labeled with N and ascending numbers, indicating that they are likely heading north, which is good. And we know the visitor area is in the north. And on a map, I believe the Hipsy, Ornithischian, and Dilophosaur paddocks are all north of the Tyrannosaur paddock. And the Apatosaur paddock, where the Hadrosaurs are also, is adjacent to the Tyrannosaur paddock. And the Stegosaur paddock is to the, in the southern fields, south of the Tyrannosaur paddock. So you tell me, should I start developing like an actual map that is novel accurate with notes and page numbers? Because that might make this a little bit easier to picture. So going past TN06, Grant stops and climbs a tree. From this spot in the Tyrannosaur paddock, they are, quote, surprisingly near the edge of the forest. Directly ahead, the trees ended before a clearing with an electrified fence and a pale concrete moat on page 236. Beyond, there's a large open field in the sauropod paddock. Beyond that, more trees and then the ocean. Following the curving gray moat, he finds a service road which leads to a maintenance shed, and perhaps a quarter mile from their tree. To exit the paddock, they scale a 12-foot electrified fence, on the other side of which is a waist-deep on Lex, or aka on an 8-year-old, and records show approximately 50 inches tall, so waist-deep is about 25-inch deep moat, which is a little over 2 feet deep, so like functionally it's not really a barrier, so perhaps this is just for drinking. From the brink of the moat, there is a field which led to a below-grade service road and maintenance building to their right. Recall, they're heading north, so they're 
Wright suggests it's on the eastern side of this field, probably. It only takes a few minutes to cross this field, so it may have only been about 100 yards or so in length. They passed two motion sensors along the way, but they are not named, so we don't know how the labeling nomenclature works now that they're on the outside of the Tyrannosaur paddock, unfortunately. And there's a baby Triceratops, Ralph, that Lex meets, suggests that this is the Ornithischian paddock with the Triceratops that we observed back on page 143. Uh, and this would be in continuity with the novel as after they witnessed the Triceratops, they visit Big Rex in the very next chapter. So when they were going uh, in the book earlier, they saw the Triceratops, then Tyrannosaurus going south, and now they're exiting Tyrannosaurus, and they bump into Triceratops next going north. So they're adjacent to one another, and we sequentially still get the feeling they're going north and south. I don't think that's a terrific observation, but it, it's affirmation of, of things that are true. All right. Before we sign off today, I want to say a great big thank you to Cole. Cole, thank you so much for, for sharing this cool project that you're working on and uh, some of your insights on the on the novel. Um, it looks like you've put a lot more thought into Site B and the Lost World than perhaps I have so far. And uh, that's fascinating stuff, the way to tie that all together. Because how Site B and everything historically in canon links to Jurassic Park, I haven't really spent much time looking at yet. It's such a strange book because it's so different from the movie. Um, and I want to sign off today thanking you for joining me. If you want to read along in the book and add some thoughts to what we've been discussing on the show or be a guest on the show and chat with me about anything you'd like about Jurassic Park, you can do that by connecting with me. I'm at ryansrogers at gmail.com, just like Colden. If you'd like to be a guest, drop me a line. We can try and set something up. We can rehash, tear down, gush over, and chit-chat about any part of the book or also not the book, all you'd like. The Jurassic Park cast is part of the Spring Chickens banner of amateur intellectual properties, including the Spring Chickens funny pages, Tomb of the Undead graphic novel, the Second Lapse graphic novelettes, the Infantry, and the worst of them all, the King Street Gamers. You can find links to all that baggage in the show notes or by visiting the schickens.blogspot.ca or finding us on Facebook at facebook.com slash springchickencapers or me I'm on Twitter at rogersryan22. Thank you dearly for tuning into the Jurassic Park cast. Jurassic Park podcast where we talk about the novel Jurassic Park and also not that too until next time I, I used to worry about what people would say but then nobody said anything uh.